0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are taking up the topic of Abraham Lincoln, theologian, obviously following up last episode on Thomas Jefferson, theologian. Um, and particularly the contrast between our third president who knew that slavery was wrong, but remained deeply and culpably entangled in it in his whole life and could not bring himself to actually do anything about it personally or legally, and our sixteenth president, who was indeed the one who thought it was worth going to war over. In fact, war was unavoidable, um, perhaps even morally necessary in some sense, and the president who signed the emancipation proclamation so um of course every american school child at least up until recently has been taught to honor and revere lincoln for this um, but dad uh, again we've talked about like what has brought us to be particularly interested in these presidents lately and for me it was the fact that a few years ago my husband and I took our son to Washington, D.C. to see the sights. And, um, you know, I have to say for all of my cynical adult knowledge of what's wrong with politics and the American experiment altogether, I was still moved by it. I mean, it's meant to be a moving place, but I realized I still um, fundamentally hold to the ideals and the hard won lessons about human nature and um, governance that they represent. And for me, they were not uh, state, of how it is, but remained a statement of how it ought to be uh, in the the best. Use of monumental architecture. And I think there, at least as far as I'm concerned, there's no denying that by far the most moving site is the Lincoln Memorial and that massive statue of Lincoln sitting there. Um, I don't know if people know this, but his um, hands, his left hand is an A in American Sign Language, and his right hand is an L in American Sign Language. That's AL for Abraham Lincoln. Oh. Yeah. And uh there are two plaques up inside, quoting from him, one from the Gettysburg Address and one from the second inaugural. And I had sh- I I know that I had um maybe even memorized the Gettysburg Address at some point, um common school child thing to do, but um And I know that I must have read the second inaugural, but I didn't remember it. And when I read it in the Lincoln Memorial again, it just like stabbed me in the heart with its depth and profundity and pain and wisdom. And so I suppose ever since then, I have been wanting a chance to get into Lincoln a little more deeply. And what I have found in preparation for this is that In his own way, Lincoln is just as perplexing a person, a Christian, and a theologian as Jefferson, but uh, very much not in the way that Jefferson is perplexing. And so I hope in this episode we will unpack that for listeners. But, Dad, I know you have been interested in Lincoln for a lot longer, and you've you've read a lot more and written about Lincoln. So why don't you um, unfold that for us?
1: Well, Sarah, you know, that's true. I revered Lincoln as a schoolchild growing up, and I'm sure I read a biography of him and uh, uh, stories or books about his assassination uh, and so on. But like you, when our family returned from six years in Europe, uh, we took your brother, who was uh, 14 years old at the time, to D.C. to see the sites. And I, too, was uh, stunned by reading the second inaugural address um, inscribed upon the wall of the Lincoln Memorial. And I was, of course, intrigued by its theology. This episode is titled Abraham Lincoln Theologian, and I resolved at that moment that I had to understand this better. And so that launched me on a long-delayed, off-and-on-again project of writing a book on American theology. And I did publish publish in the Crescent, a journal out of Valparaiso University some years ago, a study of the second inaugural address. And I, I'm sure in this episode we'll talk about that uh, quite a bit. But, um, but uh, for me, the uh, kind of entry point into this whole thing has a lot to do with the, the problem of the political use of the American founding in contemporary discourse where you have, uh, you know, the, the conflict between ideologues on the left saying that the American founders were pure secularists and uh, 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 representatives of the Enlightenment, and on the right you have people saying that America is a Christian nation founded upon Christian principles, which they then identify with the Constitution. And so, and then you have, just like in theology, you have competing hermeneutics. You have textualists saying, "What is written is written." and that's the meaning that uh, that the Constitution have, has. And then you have um, living constitution types who are saying, It's the spirit of the Constitution that has to continually be updated to meet new challenges. And so you have this kind of paralleling in theology. You have this back and forth between uh, thus it is written. Uh, Yes, that's what it's written. That's the letter, but the spirit is XYZ.
0: Yeah. And to add a couple more, there's also the historicists who say, well, it's an artifact of its time. It doesn't really have any claim on us. We just read it as such. And then you have the uh, the cultured despisers who are like, no, this is a, a corrupt document from the beginning. You know, America is is essentially and always has been essentially a racially divided slave state. Um, and you, again, it's so interesting how that parallels biblical interpretation. Again, a historicist approach to the Bible that it is purely a, a product of its time and that's its only interest and then the view of the Bible as actually poisonous and dangerous and better jettisoned with all the other baggage of history.
1: Yeah, you know, and and of course, if you're intellectually and spiritually serious, you can't be satisfied with these political bromides. You you just can't. I should say ideological bromides. Uh, And I, I think in this episode, we'd like to get down to the real crisis uh, that precipitated Lincoln's uh, presidency, which was the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court, which ruled that uh, the, um, the, 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 the law on the return of fugitive slaves was justified, that Dred Scott, an escaped slave, uh, had no right to freedom and had to be returned uh, to his owner in the southern states. And the fact of the matter is this was a responsible textual interpretation of the Constitution as it was written at that time, right? Because the American Constitution was fundamentally a compromise between the slaveholding South and the free North, uh, which accepted the peculiar institution, uh, uh, uh in in those states where it had existed, uh, and then the Fugitive Slave Law uh, was enacted uh, in order to return escaped slaves to the south, and that was associated with the expansion of slavery into the new western states territories that were becoming states of the Union and so forth. And so all of that is uh, involved in the in the debate about the authority, of the Constitution. And when Lincoln debated uh, Stephen Douglas in 1858, in the famous debates uh, for the senator senatorship from Illinois, Douglas was one of these saying, the Constitution is clear. Slavery is constitutional. And Lincoln, of course, could not contradict the plain text of the Constitution. And so, ironically, given our last podcast on Jefferson, Sarah, Lincoln had to appeal to the Declaration over and above the Constitution.
0: The Declaration that Thomas Jefferson was the primary author of, the Jefferson who could never give up his 600 slaves. Yes, a very rich irony.
1: A very, very rich irony. Exactly. And even in the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Lincoln was... uh, Using language derived from Jefferson's autobiographical note about uh, um, the justice of God could never side with slaveholding and so forth. So, 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 Sarah, those are my interests in this podcast.
0: Wonderful, and I, I guess there's um, a slight uh, relevance even for a wa- wider audience now beyond people who have visited washington dc and been moved by it with the fact that um you know as we've talked about you know that we're in the era of cancel culture and nobody is safe and um you know i have as is evident no sympathy whatsoever for cancelers where jefferson is concerned you know i get it (laughs) there's much to be extremely distressed about jefferson and making him out to be some kind of untarnished hero is pretty hard but i have to say it 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 irritates and offends me for someone like Lincoln to be canceled, even by people who are, you know, irresponsible and just enjoy cancellation for its own sake. And we will get to the reasons why that is the case. But I think we'll also be making the case that, again, a sober, intelligent, and perceptive approach to the real problems of real lived history um, requires us in the end to recognize Lincoln as a truly great man. Not a perfect one, but there are no perfect people except Jesus. So we can move on from there.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And just... Harkening back to the podcast we did at the beginning of this season on cancel culture, let's just reiterate for the record that cancellation is a cheap way uh, of avoiding debate when uh, what is really required is the hard work of critique. And critique means that you have to, by the principle of charity, take an opponent at his or her best. And when you have understood them in the best light, then and only then can you proceed to make a critique that has any traction. Otherwise, you're just uh, reducing someone uh, to a straw man or a straw woman, as the case may be, that you can easily knock down a caricature of your own fantasy. Uh, And we don't want to do that with Jefferson, and we certainly don't want to do that with Lincoln.
0: Right. Okay, so we're going to start by spending some time talking about Lincoln's religion and faith, such as it is. And um, one of the more surprising discoveries is that uh, neither Lincoln nor Jefferson are anything like orthodox Christians in their belief. You get the impression from Jefferson that he's rather lighthearted about his dismissal of the three gods, as he characterizes Trinitarianism, or the divinity of Christ, and of course all the miracles, all the stuff he cuts out from his 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 version of the Bible. Now, Lincoln also, as I discovered in my reading, was rather a skeptic and a scoffer as a young man. He also liked to irritate the Orthodox of his day and call attention to inconsistencies in scripture and the, you know, unbelievability of the claim of Jesus divinity and so forth. Um, He learned to mute that over time because it was not politically expedient, but it seems that over the course of his adulthood and especially dealing more and more with the slave question and finally, being president during war, that um, light, lighter skepticism turned into something more painful and complex. So, Dad, why don't you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, that, it is quite fascinating. The biographers have uh, dug up this religious history of Abraham Lincoln. His parents were what were called in those days hard-shell Baptists which meant they were strict double predestinarians. And Lincoln actually chafed under his father's authoritarianism. And part of his whiggishness uh, was that his he had to work, he felt, for his father's farm for uh, like a slave without compensation. And he uh, spent his time educating himself so that he could escape his own bondage to his authoritarian uh, father, who treated him like slave labor, and also uh, his predestinarian uh, 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 theology. Um, and we know that it's even possible that Lincoln read the scandalous book at the time by David Friedrich Strauss on the life of Jesus, which purported to reduce the Gospels to. Um, Pure mythology; that there was no, not even a historical basis uh, 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 in Jesus for the uh, what the Gospels say about Jesus Christ. Um, Be that as it may, um, uh, Lincoln was really more interesting this way: that out of his loss of whatever Christian faith he might have had as a child. in its place came an extraordinarily strong conscience and sense of duty. And many scholars have have observed this phenomena, that uh, if the claim has been that religion is the anchor of morality, and if then, for whatever reasons, you decide that you have to give up religion and faith, uh, there's almost like a compensatory mechanism that one must Therefore, demonstrate that giving up religion does not mean that I become uh, a a hedonist or a a profligate person, person, a prodigal person, uh, but rather an all the stronger sense of duty and obligation. And uh, this much, very much, characterizes Lincoln's character. This Victorian phenomena of duty replacing faith. This this belief. In the Almighty, and Lincoln took the term "the Almighty" quite seriously. Uh, uh, it, it it captures his basic understanding of the deity. That and and uh, he would even early in the war, when the war was not civil war was not going well, he once wrote that God's will prevails, and that. Because neither North nor South at the time is clearly achieving an easy victory Uh, in the seesaw battle in the early years of the war, his affirmation that God's will prevails indicates to him that God has purposes that are not identical either with the North or with the South. Uh, The Almighty has purposes of his own was kind of a conclusion that Lincoln was driven to already uh, in 1862. And this, Sarah, this reminds me of that passage in the book of Joshua that we discussed uh, last year, where Joshua is suddenly transported into the presence of of the prince of the armies of the Lord, a, a supernatural figure. And uh, a dangerous, ominous figure in Joshua immediately asks him, whose side are you on, ours or the uh, or the people of Jericho, the king of Jericho? And the angelic figure replies, neither.
0: <laughs> and that's just it.
1: Joshua's confronted with the fact that the Lord has purposes of his own.
0: So what do you take that to mean when Lincoln says it. I mean, again, uh, we don't want to do the, the the quest for the psychology of the historical Lincoln too far. There's a limit to that. But I mean, it, it, in the rhetoric, and it seems like the anguish with which he carried it, he does seem to really believe in an almighty deus, if not, um, you know, a, a personal Theos or something like that. He doesn't have a, a Jesus or a spirit, but he does seem to really come into through the force of of events and suffering, some kind of recognition of a a truly, I mean, maybe providence. I mean, that's an important word for early American religion. What do you think? Do you think that's what it is?
1: I think someday we'll have to do an episode on Jonathan Edwards, uh, because still to this point in history, so far as America had a theology, it was the modified Calvinism of Jonathan Edwards. And here you have a real, a genuine echo of Calvin himself—the emphasis on the majesty, the otherness, the transcendence, and the sovereignty of God, whose will prevails one way in all things—and and and this Edwardsian version of Calvin Calvinism uh, surely was in the air that Lincoln breathed at the time. Uh, but I, I think what has happened here is that kind of his earlier in life cavalier uh, dismissal of faith um, and so forth and mockery of Christianity, which, by the way, let us remember, uh, was not non-sacramental and often graceless and uh, uh, exhibiting those forms of revivalism that we've discussed that were, were so off-putting to so many people. Um, uh, so it kind of richly deserved <laughs> loss of credibility that's going on in the 19th century. But Lincoln is still, uh, before really the, the rise of science takes off like a rocket, especially with Darwin's publication of The Origin of Species, or shortly after the Civil War, or was it just at the time of the Civil War, I think. Um, Lincoln is still in a religious atmosphere in which the Almighty uh, is real, and God's will prevails. And it's in the crucible of personal as well as political suffering that Lincoln is theologizing on the, on the fly, you know, uh, in the middle of the events. And uh, and so forth, and I think you know, from a Lutheran perspective, uh, true theology and knowledge of God are in Christ crucified. No one knows God truly apart from sufferings and afflictions. That those kind of ideas, I think that Lincoln's profounder grasp um, of theology uh, that we'll be getting to shortly, was uh, born out of two things the rational criticism of forms of Christianity that could not stand up to the Enlightenment scrutiny. Like Jefferson, that's true. Uh, but even more profoundly then, his, he had suffering in his family life, and he had suffering above all as the president uh, during the war, in which he wrote letters of consolation to the Loved ones of the fallen, and this weighed deeply on his soul.
0: Right, uh, I mean, and in that in that context, and given the reasons for the war. Um... <laughs> Grace and mercy are not the things that um, an honest soul can even go looking for. And I think he somehow, even though he lived in a religious Christianity that had very little grace, I'm not sure he would have trusted or accepted it, given the weight of the crime for which America was being sifted. And also, I think uh, another, you know, real problem for biblically oriented Christianity is that all all members of, the par- of uh, both sides, more or less, were reading the same Bible and appealing to the same God. He points that out in the second inaugural. We're all working from the same texts here. Why are we arriving at such radically different conclusions about the desire of the Almighty? And so that must have also had the effect of, on one level, discrediting Christianity, and yet at the same time, this growing perception that the Almighty is doing things that cannot finally be pinned down and controlled by um, biblical or religious conventions or expectations.
1: Well, uh, let me say to that, Sarah, both yes and no. Uh, let Let me just read that text that you're referring to in the second inaugural. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not, that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes." Right. So Lincoln, you know, does grant that God's overriding purposes are often ins- inscrutable to us. But he doesn't succumb to total agnosticism about the will of God. And he does, you know, sneak in there in that way <laughs> right. the, that the just God could not possibly endorse stealing other, the fruit of other people's labor for oneself.
0: All right. Well, with that as a basis, let's shift over, which is a slight shift, not a huge shift, to his political convictions and how those end up playing out along with his um Growing religious convictions into the the final cleavage between North and South and the Civil War, because it also seems as you read him that he perceives the American Union, the the you know the states federated into one nation, as something like a sacred trust. Um, it's it's not a kind of cheap city on the hill ploy, um, and it doesn't seem to be. Uh, quite what like the you know the early Puritans would have said, but he does seem to like receive his political vocation and then his presidency as um, a sacred calling to preserve the union, and um, and so th- there's that as well as the political you know not necess- not so strictly religious reasons for preserving it, um, but I-, I think that's I-, I was struck by that um, in the end preserving the union is not enough to account for the war or the reason to insist on the union. It does finally for him come down to slavery and he will not tolerate any assertion that it's really the war of Northern aggression, as I have still occasionally heard it called or the war between the states as if the primary issue was, um, one of, you know, uh, equal numbers of slave states and non-slave states to keep the balance in the Senate or whatever. In the end, he is going to find and insist that slavery is the core issue and there's no way around it. But it does entail this sacred trust to preserve the union um, as the secondary good um, to the the end of slavery. And I I was just struck by how how important that is for him.
1: It's very important for us to get this because Lincoln... uh, Um, asserted again and again that his purpose is the preservation of the Union. His war purpose is the preservation of the Union. It was not in the beginning the emancipation of the slaves, uh, and certainly uh, 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 that is one of the reasons why some contemporaries find him uh, to be objectionable. Uh, But we have to Pay attention here, again, historically to the real world context of Lincoln's political thought. Two things you said, that he's committed to the union. Now, let's just unpack that for a minute. The union is uh, we the people in order to form a more perfect union, the preamble to the constitution. And Lincoln regards the constitution as a biblical act of covenant making. It's like the book of Deuteronomy in the the Bible, in Lincoln's mind. While the Declaration of Independence is like the the, the narrative of salvation in the book of Exodus. So you have that kind of parallelism in his mind. Uh, Now, what that means, though, is that the Union, remember that Lincoln is a, quote, Republican, end quote. The old Whig Party disappeared, and it was replaced by new nomenclature, Republican, Republicanism. What does that mean? Well, don't think about modern Republican political party at all here. Just think about what it means to be a republic. And that means a legal order, a constitutional democracy uh, structured by uh, checks and balances so that majority may rule, but minority rights are preserved. Uh, And uh, it's for the common welfare of all who are included as citizens in this union. Uh, So it's not an optimistic French Revolution kind of belief in democracy, that the people are, are inherently good and morally uh, good. And if you just liberate them from oppression, their inner beauty will shine forth and it will all be <laughs> harmony. That, that's not Lincoln's Madisonian thinking about the union at all. Uh, it's because people are motivated by interests and interests are always particular and egocentric so that my pain hurts me uh, and your pain doesn't hurt me. So my pain is more important to me than your pain. And that, that egoism is just, uh, uh, affects the construction of my interests. And my interests may be in competition with your interests. So constitutional republican uh, republicanism is based upon many of these Calvinistic insights into human finitude and sinfulness that... Um, need to be structurally checked in order to prevent oppression and to allow for the nonviolent or peaceful uh, resolution of disputes. So you could say Republican constitutional government is war continued by peaceful means, if I can make a paradox like that.
0: Right, right. Well, I'm very much struck by the... the, um, similarities here, I mean, and, and that Lincoln extends. So we, we quoted from Jefferson that, that that one inspiring quote of his of recognizing that um, slavery is as corrupting to the slave masters as to the slaves, so or it's more morally corrupting to them, and um, that it's somehow inherently repugnant um, to society as well as to God. And Lincoln takes that, but for him, it seems to be more integrally thought through and what it means to be a nation at all. He I found this letter he wrote in eighteen fifty As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. And we see that he has such a profound sense of the importance of democracy or democratic republic. But what I really got from him is that it isn't because the people are inherently wise or good or right. It's because they're inherently not good or right, and that none among them is inherently better qualified in, a, in like an ontological sense to rule over the rest. None has truly the right to to be a master. And so we live in this enormous tension of democracy because we're all sinners. And like you said, we're all egocentric and we're all in a state of constant competition. One of his critiques also um, later that I was really struck by, this is a speech he gave at the Cooper Institute in February of 1860. Um, this is basically his accusation against the South. You will destroy the government unless you be allowed to construe and enforce the Constitution as you please on all points in dispute between you and us. You will rule or ruin in all events. And that really hit me hard because there is, I mean, we've, we've, uh, it's no, no secret how polarized the American Republic is right now. But I was really struck by that perception of that democracy means that I'm supposed to get my way because I'm th- this part of the people and we know best. And Lincoln takes such an opposite view and realizes that there is a kind of lust to destruction when people don't get their way.
1: Oh, absolutely, and that's exactly what finally brought about his his assassination. Uh, The uh, John Wilkes Booth, his assassin, uh, leapt from the stage, uh, from the booth, uh, the balcony booth, where he shot Lincoln, onto the stage, crying out, "Thus always to tyrants!" Uh, And so he regarded Lincoln's assertion of the authority of the constitutional uh, uh, government as an act of tyranny, depriving him and the South of the right to hold other human beings in slavery. And this is an indication to us, Sarah, that that government cannot per se, I, I know this is somewhat controversial for people, but I say government cannot per se earthly government can not even democratic government can analogize the kingdom of god because there is always a coercive element political sovereignty and that political uh, that that element of coercion can be softly carried and gently applied uh, in an enlightened way but it's always right there just below the surface if you run the red light and the cop sees you, you're going to get pulled over and ticketed. You know, and and if you keep doing that, you're going to lose your license. And if you lose your license, you're going to lose your welfare. I mean, there's all these mechanisms of coercion that, that are behind the authority of the state uh, to enforce a minimum of public order. Uh, to ensure the the safety of uh, uh, of the people and so forth uh, and so that presupposes this this uh, this egocentrism that i talked about earlier and it's not a romantic or utopian view of the inherent goodness of the people
0: right I, I, i'm really struck to there about the I I think you're right, absolutely right that even the best governments do not analogize the kingdom because of this. I remember when I was younger and a lot stupider about political matters, you know, of temporarily entertaining the idea like oh majority rule, why is that so great? You know, because you know the majority, you know the the biggest group of people get what they want and they stomp on the little guy um, until you flip it around and realize. So do you want a tiny number of people ruling everybody else? <laughs> That's actually oligarchy or ultimately tyranny, which is what Lincoln is doing. So I I wanted to share this again. Um, This is from his first inaugural. And this is why, for him, secession itself is such a sin against the American covenant. Um, and And so incredibly dangerous, even to the South. He says, plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy, A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it, and he's not like complimenting this here, you know, he's saying like, yeah, you're changing your mind all the time and going from one thing to the next. But to reject this will of the people still held in in check and having limitations, whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or to despotism. Unanimity is impossible. The rule of a minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible, so that rejecting the majority principle, anarchy or despotism, in some form, is all that is left. So that is his political argument for why there has to be majority rule, why the union has to stay intact. But that, of course leads him again and again to the core painful issue is the only reason we are even having this discussion at this point in time is because you in the South think slaveholding is okay and we in the North do not. And there is no peace between these two factions. We cannot any longer coexist with the difference of opinion of this magnitude.
1: Yeah, even, But even that, Sarah, Lincoln was willing to tolerate it uh, until the South began to secede from the Union. That was the red line that was crossed.
0: What I what I got in a new way from working through his his writings here is the fact that this covenantal unity and the all of the hard won human wisdom that it represents. Like again, as he uh really famously says in the Gettysburg Address, um, you know he talks about. Th- our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And now we, the living who have survived, because you know this is consecrating the cemetery at Gettysburg, um, it is the great task that remains before us is that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And so again, I'm just so struck by this Intertwining. I, I suppose maybe the reason I keep saying this is because I had absorbed the idea that it's either the war between the states and it's about Senate votes or it's about slavery. And what I see for for Lincoln is how deeply intertwined these two things are. It matters actually for the whole history of the human race whether it is possible to have a constitutionally limited government ruled by and for the people without tyranny. This is something that we owe to the entire world. But at the same time, we are living on top of the most massive, painful contradiction that cannot be allowed to stand any longer. And that is the the holding and owning and trading and disposing of human beings as if they were property.
1: Right. I I think you're right about that, Sarah. Lincoln would have learned from John Locke the immorality of slavery. There's a, a lengthy discussion of that in the Second Treatise of Government. And Lincoln himself, from his own youthful experiences of feeling that he was practically a slave to his father, uh, and being a kind of a Whig, a kind of an early capitalist kind of Republican, he was a Republican, you know, is thinking that you you deserve the fruits of your labor. And stealing the uh, another person's labor uh, is a terrible injustice. So the fact of slavery is to lincoln clearly contrary to the uh, spirit of the american constitution when the spirit is identified with the credo of the declaration as you just cited the gettysburg address dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal right so that that's those are lincoln's core convictions and he wants to preserve the union that is dedicated to such a proposition. Uh, but even, as we mentioned earlier, it's not until the South actually begins to secede that w- that Lincoln goes to war or that war is forced upon Lincoln or something like that. Right. Though it but seems to me he's, he's with,
0: suspecting that... It could come. I mean, it, it. You read the stuff before the actual secession. He seems to kind of see it on the horizon as a real possibility and recognize oh, that sure. there's only so long we can go on half slave, half not slave. It's not gonna. It's not a sustainable so- yeah. solution. That's
1: that's yeah. the famous House divided speech. Right. Right. Uh, uh, and I just wanted to mention here that the the way you you uh, parse that out was very good between. Um, between anarchy and despotism. The political model that Lincoln is resisting is Napoleon Bonaparte, and Uh. this is called Bonapartism. And you might remember that the French Revolution had degenerated into a terrible bloodbath and chaos, and into this confusion marched Napoleon Bonaparte from the south of France into paris and he became the first military dictator of modern Europe. But he did so in the name of the progressive ideology of the French Revolution. And uh, this uh, stopped the domestic bloodshed and unified the country around Napoleon. But there was no solution to the real problems of civic and social justice within France, and so, what Napoleon decided to do, and this is what all military dictators up to Vladimir Putin decide to do when they have domestic problems let's find an external enemy and go to war and drive the rest of the people to happiness with an iron fist. And so, Napoleon goes on these wars of conquest, rampaging through Europe to bring the blessings of the French Revolution to the benighted other nations, right? And that model was actually being advocated in some abolitionist circles in the North prior to the Civil War. And Lincoln consciously is rejecting Bonapartism as a dive into strongman authoritarianism, military martial law, and despotism.
0: Yes, uh, fearsome fearsome alternatives. I, I just like to... Read one more extract to that, because this also struck me very hard Um, and related to what you just said in his annual message to Congress that he delivered in December 1862. He says, it is not can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? object whatever is possible, still the question recurs, can we do better? uh, That really got to me because it's so easy to imagine better. You know, anyone can come up with a utopia that works, but to actually do better in reality? And uh, he continues to say, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. Uh, The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. And his closing um, exhortation is we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. Other means may succeed. This could not fail. The way is plain, peaceful, generous, just a way which, if followed, the world will forever applaud. And God must forever bless. So uh, now that you've mentioned Napoleon, I can entirely imagine that, that in, in the background of saying, you know, we, we don't get to choose our circumstances or our utopias. This is what's been given to us. And either we preserve this non-anarchic and non-despotic way of governing or, you know, the whole project goes down in flames and the whole world suffers for it.
1: And it is predicated, again, on a moral claim of human equality. Uh, And that ultimately derives from the image of God passages in Genesis. Uh, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, etc. So there is that allusion, allusion in the declaration to the book of Genesis via John Locke, right? And Lincoln is picking that up. And I think Sarah... That is now a segue to some of the developing theology of Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War, and I, w- I would like to bring into the discussion um, the uh, the, uh, de- na- the speechy or the statement he made on proclamation of a national day of fasting in March eighteen sixty three. I I think this uh, undoubtedly composed by Lincoln himself. Uh, And this is evidence, I think, of even though he wasn't any kind of conventional Christian, he was a deeply engaged reader of the Bible and probably a pretty good reader, especially of the prophets of Israel. This is what he wrote. Whereas it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord, and insomuch as we know that by his divine law nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins, to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. That's Lincoln. That's... uh, and I think you see also in there the understanding of costly grace uh, that Lincoln is maturing to a view beyond judgment, but the way beyond judgment is through repentance, and repentance means self-examination, not blaming the other guy. Notice that Lincoln is not singling out the South as the as the uh, as the evildoers and painting the North um, as, the, um, as the righteous. He's talking about our sins and our failures, exhorting to self-examination.
0: Yeah, I mean, as, as president in a civil war, he can assume that nobody in the South is going to listen to this proclamation for a national fast day. So even though he continues to address the whole American na- nation intact, implicitly it's only people in the North who are going to hear this call to repentance.
1: I think that's right. And so Lincoln is realizing that, as you were saying earlier, the inadequacy of a mere preservation of the Union. And in Gettysburg Address, which you quoted earlier, he talks about a new birth of freedom. Now, in 19th century America, new birth is not some innocent or accidental metaphor. <laughs> right. You know, it's coming right out of the second great awakening. It's coming right out of the, the sweeping revival that gave birth to the abolitionist movement. And I think what Lincoln is saying is that the first birth of the American nation um, was uh, stained with the original sin of the race-based slave system. And uh, even though this was a birth of freedom, freedom from England, freedom from from monarchy, and so forth, it was a a birth into a new kind of tyranny, a tyranny that depended on a race based slave system. And so by the time Lincoln is speaking in the Gettysburg Address of the great cost of the Civil War and uh, the purposes for which it is fought, He's giving rise to a hope uh, for a a rebirth, a new birth, uh, uh, in the in the thick theological sense, a new birth of liberty.
0: Yeah, it, it, you know, it is striking too. You talk about Lincoln as an intelligent and perceptive reader of scripture, even if not in the um, <laughs> the usual pious sense. And yet, as you know, I remember you said in a. In a episode a couple months back you said you know talked about being someone who is intellectually moved and fascinated and captivated by Christian theology and biblical writing and if that if that is actually a Christian Practice, a, a pious practice, even though it doesn't have the outward trapping of piety necessarily. In that respect, surely Lincoln is a true theologian. And I found this lovely excerpt. He, um, a committee of colored people, that's how it was put in my book, um, gave Lincoln a Bible in September 1864. And he gave a gracious response, concluding with In regard to the great book, I have only to say that it is the best gift which God has ever given to man. All the good from the savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. But for that book, we could not know right from wrong. All those things desirable to man are contained in it. And, (laughs) um, you know, it could be a politically expedient thing to say, um, Jefferson could have said something like that, though. The fact that Lincoln uses the word savior of the world is stronger than what we would hear from Jefferson. But I wonder, you know, he's he's about half a year away from his death. Of course, he doesn't know that at the time. But uh, I wonder if the, the pressures of the war, again, have not given him a conventionally pious regard for scripture, but have done some work on his his soul and his mind that is coming out in that little um, address.
1: Yeah, I, uh, of course, we have to be cautious. I think you're right. I think I, I've i suggested as much myself just a few moments ago, that in the crucible of profound suffering, and Lincoln did suffer through the Civil War, um, with the massive uh, uh, slaughter that was occurring. Uh, and he was witnessing and nevertheless, uh, you know, his duty to maintain the resolve in the face of of a deep sense of guilt and responsibility for all the death the war was causing, I think his 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 new theology was coming out of that uh, um, out of that crucible of suffering. Uh, and you know, before we uh, turn uh, to the uh, final uh, um, theology of the second inaugural address. I want to just discuss for a moment, Sarah, the objection that Lincoln was a racist.
0: Yeah, Uh, I wanted to do that too. Good, good, good. Yeah.
1: Okay, what are your thoughts about that? And then I'll tell you mine.
0: Well, you know, as, as you said a number of times, Lincoln is deeply morally offended by the theft. Of one man's labor by another. And he often talks about the denial of liberty in those terms. And, you know, no arguments that it is deeply and repugnantly wrong to steal a person's labor. Um, I don't see as much Lincoln naming you're stealing a person's life and body and um, even to an extent their soul by denying them, you know, their right to their own family um, with, of course, countless women, the right to their own sexuality. Um, uh, to their right to an education. Um, That doesn't seem to uh, be something he speaks about as often, or at least not that I saw. Maybe I just missed those. And also, you know, he very little talks about the fact that the slavery overall falls on people of much darker skin than the slaveholders. And when he does talk about um, Black people as Black, you know, he he's Says things which are offensive to us today on the lines that I'm, I'm want them to have civil equality, but I'm not saying they're totally socially equal with us or cu- culturally equal. I don't think he would use the word culturally, but you know he he has to kind of say, look, I'm I'm not proposing radical integration of them with us, and he actually extends the Jeffersonian project to uh, it wasn't just Jefferson, but the early American project to try to figure out how to get these Africans back to Africa and establish them. And the modern West African nation of Liberia comes out of this resettlement project. Um, There is not much perception of the possibility of integrated, racially integrated American society. And so where we are now, that just sticks out like a sore thumb from Lincoln's otherwise impressive record. Um, You know, I, I... the the, the the normal thing is to either say Lincoln had no excuse. He and everybody else should have known better or, well, you know, they're men of their time. They couldn't possibly know better. Both of those seem deeply unsatisfying to me. But I think there's no way around registering the fact that Lincoln could clearly recognize the evil of stealing someone's labor and want to end slavery without necessarily having the capacity or the imagination or the moral impulse that uh, if I'm claiming all along that these people are truly human, cannot be property, must be equals, then that implies a whole lot more about the new society we're bringing forth. Clearly, there was so much fear, paranoia. I mean, I wouldn't blame them. You know, How can you possibly imagine being on equal footing with people you'd enslaved for multiple generations? But um, sure. that seems to be something that a lot more American history has to unfold to sort out.
1: Well, actually, after Lincoln's death, there was a period of eight or ten years of Reconstruction in which there there was a a flourishing of African-American freedom in the South, but it was betrayed by North-South reconciliation, so-called, and the end of Reconstruction and the establishment of Jim Crow laws, which really kind of betrayed uh, Lincoln's uh, projected future of uh, malice towards none, uncharity towards all. But uh, to the specific matter of Lincoln's uh, ra- racism, it certainly wasn't a virulent racism, uh, a hate-filled racism such as we see in some other contemporary uh, contemporaneous actors. It was uh, it was the racism of ignorance and segregation. Uh, And uh, uh, he was a Northerner. He did not live um, in close proximity uh, to the black population, which was almost entirely concentrated in the American South. Um, And he tried to parse a distinction between civil justice and social justice, I think that's worth dwelling on for a second, Sarah, because nowadays we use the word social justice so cavalierly without giving it any thought. Um, But Jefferson and Lincoln and Locke before them, these are all people whose concern is with civil justice, civil rights. That is to say, the rights of people over against the power of the state. And, um, uh lincoln extends that principle of civil right into the realm of the economy that's kind of lincoln's innovation over against jefferson uh, it, jefferson would have said the bill of rights is strictly about limiting the power of government against my personal freedom But Lincoln is extending the principle of equality into the realm of economics and saying no one has the right to steal someone else's labor as the slave system does uh, structurally and institutionally. And so here, let me quote from October 1858, uh, Lincoln's statement on political equality, civil, civil justice, and how he distinguishes it from social justice. He said, I have expressly disclaimed all intention to bring about social and political equality between the white and black races, and in all the rest I have done the same thing by clear implication. I have made it equally plain that I think the Negro is included in the word men used in the Declaration of Independence. I believe the declaration that all men are created equal is the great fundamental principle upon which our free institutions rest, that Negro slavery is violative of that principle, but that, by our frame of government, that principle has not been made one of legal obligation, that, by our frame of government, states which have slavery are to retain it or surrender it at their own pleasure, and that all others, individuals, free states, and national government, are constitutionally bound to leave them alone about it. I believe our government was thus framed because of the necessity springing from the actual presence of slavery when it was framed. But it does not follow that social and political equality between whites and blacks must be incorporated because slavery must not... Uh, that declara- that the declaration does not require. So what a fine line Lincoln is parsing here. He's denying that the abolition or the limitation of slavery would bring about social uh, equality or equality in political power. But he is insisting that the principle of equality does apply Uh, to the enslaved uh, black population, and it particularly uh, applies uh, to their economic rights to the fruits of their own labor. And I think that is what uh, was so deeply threatening to the South, because like the North, they shared the racist assumption that whites and blacks were not equal socially. That was not in dispute between North and South. What was in dispute was that blacks had the right to the fruits of their own labor. And that's how Lincoln was extending the principle of equality.
0: All right. Well, we um, we will leave him with as far as he could get. And it was pretty damn far considering what he was given and what he was was working with. So um, let's then wrap up now. Um, I thought I would just read this last section of the second inaugural, Dad, and uh, let you comment on it. Sound okay? Sure. All right. So th- this is after the part that you quoted about uh, wringing the bread of from the sweat of other men's faces. The Almighty has his own purposes. So Lincoln goes on. "'Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh.'" That is quoting from Jesus. Lincoln continues. "'If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war,' as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills, let it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said three thousand years ago, still still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all. With firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I'm tempted to add amen.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful rhetoric. And it's, uh, again, an instance that we've been building up to in this podcast of uh, Lincoln's interpreting the American experience of the Civil War through the lens of of Israel scripture, particularly prophetic scripture, which talks about human political catastrophes like war um, as um, expressions of the righteous judgment of God Upon the sin, it's interesting. The first quote: "Woe to the world because of offences! Woe to the man by whom the offence cometh!" That is a reference to who? To Judas Iscariot. Yeah. And so that, that's not that's not a casual allusion. It's again this notion that the slave system was a betrayal, uh, the original sin, the betrayal of the American covenant which God permits, permitted, just like God permitted Judas to betray Christ. But now its time is over. And this uh, a terrible war, he gives to use red to both North and South. Notice once again that Lincoln does not villainize the South and valorize the North. He thinks that the fault for this institution, uh, this offensive institution, is, um, applies to, to both historically.
0: Well, the theologic of the Union is that even if the North didn't have slaves, it has consented all this time to be in a covenantal fellowship with the South that did. So you can't just cleanly say, well, we're not guilty because we didn't do that up North. Yes, but you were part of a covenantal union with the South that did. You're not off the hook.
1: That's right. The North was complicit. That's exactly right. And then he points to something that a lot of modern Christians find very discomforting, but it's there in scripture. He talks about uh, uh, a retributive justice. He talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He talks about the equality, um, the equalizing effect of a punishment uh, over against uh, the pain that has been inflicted injuriously upon another with that powerful rhetoric, every drop of blood drawn drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. And yet we must confess, he, again, he's quoting scripture, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So that is the pronouncement in Lutheran lingo. That is the law. The law has done its work. It has exposed and indicted the betrayal of the American covenant by the race-based slave system, and it has now executed judgment upon it. What comes after judgment? That new birth of freedom, with malice toward none, with charity for all. With malice towards none, with charity towards all, right? That's Lincoln's sparsely worded gospel right that overcoming the feelings of hatred that are generated in war the uh, victorious north must now uh, experience this new birth of freedom first of all in their own minds and hearts that there should uh, be no vengeance no hatred towards the defeated south firmness in the right as, as God gives us the right to see, striving to finish the work, to bind up the nation's wound, uh, that uh, to the end that we achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations, a just and lasting peace. So, yeah, I think that Lincoln, in spite of his uh, heterodoxy, let's put it that way, uh, actually becomes a rather profound preacher of law and gospel. What's missing of course, in his theology is Jesus Christ. Uh, but that's missing in Lincoln's theology. I would dare to say that Jesus Christ is nevertheless present uh, in Lincoln's words.
0: in the way that the uh the warrior of the Lord of hosts appears to Joshua. And refuses to take sides and yet is present somehow in that mighty conflict that unfolds between them.
1: Yes, and in, in fights for the liberation of Israel and uh, uh, for the purposes of the covenant, yeah.
0: All right. Well, I think we will leave it at that. Um, there are few things that cannot be improved upon, but I think the second inaugural of President Lincoln is one that can't. So next time on the show, we will continue and wrap up this theme by a look at the epistle of Paul to Philemon. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlekeywilson.com and paulhenlekey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.